and I think it makes it clear to everybody who will read this document that the Democratic Party is absolutely for them having a living, livable wage. Mm, or not. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, on 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM, Queso in Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, 93 FM, WLRI in Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM, KAKU, the voice of Maui. And in Ohio on uh, WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus. Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and Radio Monterey. And yes, Radio Sputnik, five days a week, blanketing planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, if not you, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. The uh, As we finished up last uh, on our last thrilling episode of the Bradcast, we were just getting word about what was going on in Istanbul at the uh, Ataturk Airport out there where suicide attackers armed with guns and bombs killed now uh, 41 people is the number we have, and they wounded more than 230 at Istanbul's very busy Ataturk airport, one of the busiest in the world. The Turkish government has said that Islamic State extremists are believed responsible, though uh, at this hour I don't believe that ISIS has yet to claim responsibility for the attack. Nonetheless, Turkish authorities are still piecing together how the triple suicide attack happened. It was thought to be a double suicide attack as of yesterday, now a triple attack. 41 people died, as I said, excluding the bombers who arrived in a taxi and blew themselves up after coming under fire, according to the Turkish government. In their attacks on American targets, at least, Muslim extremists have long-sided U.S. policies in the Middle East, including our support for Israel, our occupation of foreign countries, our use of torture and prisons like uh, Guantanamo Bay uh, following 9-11, and our use of drone strikes more recently, among other complaints. Now, the U.S. government uh, says that we have banned the use of those kind of torture techniques, such as waterboarding, which is a violation of all sorts of uh, international agreements. In fact, it is a war crime. So how is the presumptive Republican nominee for president of the United States responding to the terror attacks in Istanbul yesterday? Apparently, he's calling for the U.S. to start torturing again. <laughs> Donald Trump uh, told a, uh, a rally in uh, St. Clairsville, Ohio. He said... Um, 
We can't do waterboarding, but they can do chopping off heads, drowning people in steel cages. They can do whatever they want to. Went on to say, you know, you have to fight fire with fire. Uh, Trump asked the crowd what they thought about waterboarding, which is a, a form of simulated drowning. It was banned even by George W. Bush's administration back in 2006 after they had used it over and over again. But even they ultimately banned it. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, he asked the crowd what they thought about it. He said, I like it a lot. And, of course, the crowd went wild. He said, I don't think it's tough enough. Waterboarding is not tough enough. Uh, the technique has been condemned as completely ineffective, completely violative of international agreements on torture, but Trump insisted that it didn't go far enough. He gave a uh, vaguely worded statement, uh, according to TPM, uh, in a tweet on Tuesday. He hinted that uh, his plan to use other torture techniques, he said, uh, basically saying that U.S. officials should do, quote, everything possible to prevent terrorist attacks. And, of course, there is no evidence that torturing anybody prevents any terror attack, but don't tell Donald Trump. In an interview on CNN's Situation Room, uh, he, he said he would change our law on, quote, you know, the waterboarding thing in order to, quote, be able to fight at least on an almost equal basis. He said nothing's nice about it, but it's a minimal form of torture. So just a little bit of torture is OK, apparently, Desi Doyen, now that you know. Oh, I, my God. I know. It's just minimal form of torture. I saw you just your, your head almost I know. fell off I, as I, I read that. I, I almost fell out of my chair. I mean, this is Ronald Reagan He's, said waterboarding was wrong. He said uh, Trump went on to say we can't waterboard and they can chop off heads as if to say Donald Trump would really prefer to be able to chop off heads. It's totally unfair that they get to chop off heads, but we don't get to. So at least we could just do a little bit of waterboarding. He has, of course, he's been doing this. He's been pushing this uh, for a long time throughout the 2016 race, uh, despite the fact that the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, human rights, who cares about that, uh, has uh, has condemned Donald Trump's position on this former prisoner of war, Senator John McCain of Arizona, has condemned Donald Trump's position on this. However, just a little. He hasn't condemned it that much because he is still supporting Donald Trump for president. John McCain in a tough fight, tough battle uh, for his own reelection in Arizona this year. So, uh, so so Donald <laughs> Trump's big plan to fight yeah. terrorism is to become just like the terrorists. Yeah. Got a problem with that? Yes, I have a big problem with that. Well, so does uh, much of the world, apparently, because a new uh, multi-nation survey, according to AP, uh, finds that confident in confidence in Donald Trump's ability to manage foreign policy should he become the U.S. president is rock bottom in a host of countries in both Europe and Asia. In seven of 15 countries outside of the U.S., polled by Pew Research, Trump's ratings are in the single digits. Large majorities in 11 of the countries have little or no confidence in the prospective Republican presidential nominee's ability to manage international affairs. That includes 92% of Swedes, 89% of Germans, 82% of Japanese. He polls uh, better in China, however. There's a split there uh, between 40% who have no confidence in Trump and 39% who don't offer an opinion.
That's about as well as 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 it goes for uh, for Trump. Uh, he records his highest ratings in Europe uh, among supporters of political parties that are anti-immigration or oppose European integration. But even among those poll respondents, his confidence ratings remain below one third. So he doesn't even do all that well with the racists around the country, around the world. I'm sorry, around the world. Right. The uh, survey gauged opinions from 20,000 people in Canada, the U.S., 10 nations in Europe and four in the Asia Pacific uh, from early April until late May. Hillary Clinton fares much better, apparently. A median of 59 percent in Europe have confidence in the Democratic contender compared with just 9 percent for Trump. 59 percent uh, for Clinton have confidence in her in, uh, in Europe, just 9 percent for Donald Trump. Um, kind of amazing. Uh, meanwhile, back here in these uh, United States of America, Hillary Clinton leads Donald Trump by just 42 to 40 percent in a brand new National Quinnipiac University poll released on Wednesday, showing the two candidates in a much closer race than in other recent surveys. The latest uh, poll represents a dip from uh, uh, Clinton's uh, uh, previous lead. She previously led 45 to 41 by four points, and now that's down to just two points, at least in this Quinnipiac poll. When you add in the uh, other major party candidates, uh, like the Libertarian and, and Green Party candidates, uh, Gary Johnson uh, for the Libertarian Party gets 8%, Jill Stein gets 4%, but Clinton is still only ahead of Trump by two points with those other, four par- uh, with those other uh, parties uh, questioned. Both top candidates face negative favorability ratings and dismal reviews from voters. According to this poll, a majority of respondents, 58 percent, said that Trump will not be a good president compared to 35 percent who says he will. Uh, But Clinton only did slightly better. Fifty three percent of the voters say she will not serve well in the White House. A majority of uh, of voters, at least according to this survey, says she will not do well in the White House. Forty three percent saying that she will. Kind of amazing. Uh, The survey comes after a month of ominous news. TPM notes uh, the mass shooting attack in Orlando, Florida, the United Kingdom's vote to leave the European Union, suicide bombings at Istanbul's international airport. Uh, According to the Quinnipiac survey, 52 percent of voters said that Trump would be more effective than Clinton at handling ISIS. Did you get that? 52 percent of voters. Uh, A weird survey. A weird survey, uh, but that's uh, Quinnipiac and, uh, you know, they're a legitimate polling uh, outfit. Clinton, however, was favored to do better to respond to an international crisis with 51 percent of the vote compared to Trump's 42 percent for an international crisis. Those uh, results, however, are very different from uh, recent results uh, from NBC News, from ABC News, Washington Post, Bloomberg and others. Uh, So we'll see if that was an outlier or not. Um, Meanwhile, Democratic voters, at least within the Democratic Party itself, they do now seem to be coalescing around Hillary Clinton as their standard bearer this year, despite those low favorability ratings. Uh, And even uh, as Bernie Sanders and his supporters are pushing for a more progressive Democratic Party platform. In an appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert last week, Sanders did not endorse Hillary Clinton, at least not yet, but he was asked by Colbert 
what he wants from Clinton in exchange for his support. And he also said that his supporters, unlike the uh, Brexit voters uh, in the UK, that they are young and that ultimately he believes they are smart enough to not vote for Donald Trump, who has <laughs> who has been trying to make a play for Bernie Sanders supporters, many of whom have said over the course of the Democratic primary battle that they might be just fine with Trump if that's what a Bernie or bust movement ends up meaning. Here's a little bit from uh, from The Late Show late last week. We received in, I believe, every single primary and caucus, the lion's share of young people, people under 45 years of age, who are prepared to stand up and fight for real change in this country. That's what we are bringing in to the Democratic Convention. What do we want in return? We want our 12 million supporters to be heard. That means we want... What's what's your proof of that? What's the proof of that for you? Well, the proof is, good, we are right now, to be honest with you, we are, our campaign is talking to Secretary Clinton uh, and her campaign. And what we are trying to do is make certain that she's going to come out very strongly uh, in moving toward making public colleges and universities tuition free. I want to see her move in that direction. Is this a, is this a friendly conversation? Yeah, it is. Look, I, well, it's friendly. <laughs> I mean, Secretary Clinton, who I've known for 25 years, and I agree that Trump has got to be defeated. Some people felt like the fix was in for Secretary Clinton. Donald Trump says, rotten system, fix was in, Bernie got cheated, Bernie, Bernie's supporters, come come vote for Trump. Well, Would you like to say anything to your supporters about whether they should vote I, for I don't Trump? have to say that. My supporters are smart enough to know that we do not want a bigot to become president of the United States <laughs> Bernie Sanders on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert late last week. In fact, recent polling seems to indicate that Sanders supporters are, in fact, not uh, supporting Donald Trump after all. They seem to be moving towards Clinton quite quickly. Uh, As the ABC News Washington Post poll out this week shows, Clinton has taken an 11-point lead over Trump, according to that poll, at least nationally, uh, in that poll, if not in others, and, and, and not in a number of key swing states where the race is still much closer. But to Sanders' point concerning uh, Trump, the Washington Post finds that Sanders may be right on that score. Last month, 20 percent, 20 percent of Sanders supporters said that they would back Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton in the uh, Washington Post ABC News poll in the general election. But this month, that 20 percent number is now down to just 8 percent. And please note that uh, the poll came out over the weekend after Sanders's uh, remarks uh, on on CBS late last week that his supporters would not support Donald Trump on, on Colbert's show. So it looks like Bernie Sanders was right on that. But what about the voices of those 12 million Sanders supporters uh, that he talked about? What about their right to be heard? Will they be heard, as the Vermont senator suggests, as he uh, argues he is fighting for? Sanders is placing his hopes for that, it seems, on changing the Democratic Party's official platform to be much more progressive than it has ever been in the past. Now, to that end, representatives of both the Sanders and Clinton camps have been hammering out positions in a draft party platform document to be presented at next month's Democratic National Party convention in Philadelphia. So how's that going? 
We'll check in to see how that's going next with my guest, Ben Norton of Salon, right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Welcome back. Philadelphia Freedom, indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com as the uh, Democrats uh, have their eyes on Philadelphia next month, where they will be meeting for their Democratic National Convention. But first, uh, near the end of the bruising Democratic primary between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, the Sanders camp shifted its goals towards an attempt to move many of their progressive policy initiatives into the Democratic Party's platform to be adopted at the upcoming National Party Convention in Philadelphia in late July. Part of the Sanders team's negotiations with the Clinton camp and the DNC included five appointed positions on the 15-person platform drafting committee where they've been able to post five very strong progressives, the Sanders camp has, uh, against six appointees from Hillary Clinton's campaign and two appointees from the pro-Clinton DNC chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Though it should be noted here, by the way, that one of Wasserman Schultz's two appointees is the very progressive congresswoman Barbara Lee from California. She's, uh, by way of reminder, she's the only member of either the U.S. House or Senate in either party to vote against the authorization for military force in uh, in Afghanistan back in 2001 following 9-11. That authorization, by the way, is still used today as justification for pretty much every bit of foreign interventionism and bombing, etc., that the U.S. is carrying out around the world. Um, and that's exactly what she argued at the time. In any event, the uh, the platform drafting committee has been holding public forums and meetings around the country in advance of Philadelphia as it puts together the document to be presented for approval by DNC delegates next month. So far, they've held uh, forums, uh, was- uh, let's see, forums in Washington, D.C. and Phoenix and a public meeting of the committee in St. Louis, Missouri, my old hometown uh, last weekend. 
that is in advance of another forum coming up in a week or so in Orlando, Florida. The issues to be hammered out by the Democrats include the party's position on Israel and Palestine, trade deals, fracking, a carbon tax and other environmental issues, Wall Street regulation, health care, student loan debt, campaign finance, uh, and even the use of so-called superdelegates in the nomination process and much more, including a position on minimum wage for the party. The process has, to date, led to both agreement and disagreement among the committee appointees. Writing at Salon this week after the committee's meeting in St. Louis last week, political writer Ben Norton reported that the Representatives uh, on the committee uh, appointed by Hillary Clinton to the Democratic Party's platform drafting committee voted against voted against a $15 minimum wage amendment last Friday. The five representatives who were appointed by Clinton's presidential opponent, Bernie Sanders, supported the amendment. The but the proposal was defeated eight to six. The only person on the committee aside from the Sanders surrogates who supported the, the amendment was California Congresswoman Barbara Lee. On numerous proposed amendments in the hearing, Clinton's appointees voted together in opposition to Sanders' appointees in what looked like a kind of proxy battle between the two popular Democratic presidential candidates, according to Salon's Ben Norton, who joins us now. Ben is a political staff writer at Salon.com. He's the proprietor of BenNorton.com. Ben, great to have you here on the broadcast. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Longtime fan, by the way. So glad we, we finally get uh, get you on air here. I want to get into the specifics of the minimum wage tussle that you covered at Salon this week and, and perhaps a few other uh, uh, related items in the uh, agenda and the, the platform battle uh, negotiation, whatever we want to call it. Uh, but in broad terms for the moment, how would you characterize the general tone of the committee's work together on this so far from, from what you've been able to see in any event? Well, and I think it's been predictable. It really has reflected the overall tenor of the election itself. You know, you have the wing of the Democratic platform drafting committee uh, who represent Clinton, and, you know, kind of obediently they represent her policies. And then you have the Sanders wing, and it's this kind of tug-and-pull battle. And in the case of the platform drafting committee, you know, uh, uh, Sanders appointed five, mm -hmm. Clinton appointed six, and actually Washington Schultz appointed four. Oh. So Sanders, um, his appointees were very much outnumbered. Um, and, you know, I, I do think we should give W. Washington Schultz credit for appointing Barbara Lee. That was a good decision, but mm -hmm. I don't think we should completely let her off. Um, she did appoint four people, and one of them is someone named Bonnie Schaefer, who is the CEO of Claire's, the jewelry company. So, I mean, she did, you know, appoint a, a corporate executive. Well, she's the former CEO, but did appoint mm -hmm. someone who kind of represents that business class. But, but I think overall, you know, if you look at the votes, as I said, it, it looked kind of like a proxy battle. You uh -huh. know, you had the Sanders appointees pushing for more progressive measures mm -hmm. and the, the Clinton appointees, you know, opposing those measures. And, you know, I think in some ways, you know, uh, we did see some progress. But I think overall, uh, I think there is reason to be pessimistic for a potential Clinton presidency, given the way that uh, this has, you know, uh, represented itself at the DNC committee drafting, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, this is not—it's not just rhetoric of her campaign. This is the actual, uh, the, you know, the moment where people are creating a document that isn't even binding, and I think that should be stressed. The DNC platform 
is not a binding document. You, you, the president does not have to follow it. It's simply a suggestion of what the party recommends. Which, so which even yeah, keep going. Well, no, no, I, I was going to say which, yeah, which, which makes me wonder why, uh, you know, the, the the Clinton folks aren't sort of more amenable to some of these things, if only in a political sense. We'll get to that in a moment. Let, let, just by way of example here, you covered this minimum wage fight. Uh, this to me. Uh, seems to be pretty low-hanging fruit, actually. Uh, but apparently it's not. I mean, you you would think this one would be an easy one. Sure, you guys want to call for $15, let's do it. But uh, the, the Clinton surrogate's argument against specifically calling for a minimum wage uh, in the platform, which uh, Minnesota Congressman Keith Ellison was arguing strongly for at that St. Louis meeting, uh, was that her representative said the party platform already supports a $15 minimum wage. But um, does it? Does it actually? Yes, this was very misleading. And if you watch the video of the hearing, you mm-hmm. can hear the answer. Paul Booth, who's an AFSCME representative, who represents a labor union, but who is, you know, a very staunch Hillary Clinton supporter and who is wearing her pin um, on his lapel at the uh, meeting. Mm-hmm. He's the one who, you know, said that response, and his answer kind of oscillated throughout the debate. So the argument that the, the Clinton camp made was that, well, our platform already supports the $15 minimum wage. Actually, what it does is it says the Democratic Party supports, you know, initiatives that would, you know, raise the minimum wage to $15, but that it does not call for a federal $15 minimum wage. There's a, there's a you know, an important distinction mm-hmm. there. Clinton herself has said, oh, yeah, I absolutely support the Fight for 15 movement. But she doesn't support implementing a federal $15 minimum wage. She supports a $12 federal minimum wage. So what, what Booth eventually said when he was pushed a little bit, this is the, the Clinton representative, mm-hmm. he said, well, you know, different cities and states have different approaches. You know, some states might need smaller wages. Mm-hmm. He implied that some states might need smaller minimum wages. Whereas the Sanders camp said, no, you know, if... If the current minimum wage had been indexed for inflation in 1968, it would actually be probably more than $22. So their argument is, no, $15 should be a federal minimum. And then, you know, states that are more expensive, like California and New York, could have something even more than 15 And even if they did that, they would still be under what was the actual policy in 1968. So there was been some reporting on that that was kind of misleading, but the Clinton camp claimed that they supported it, but they're getting into semantics. It's, it's particular details, and in a nutshell, they did not support actually writing in the document that we want a $15 federal minimum mm-hmm. wage period. And, and that was uh, a, a point that came up in a number of the Democratic primary uh, debates between the two of them, where she sort of said, well, yes, I'm I'm all in favor of a $15 minimum wage. The, the case being she's not against it if states want to do that, but, uh, you know, not a federal mandate for it, I guess, would be the, the fair way to describe it. What What's the what's the Clinton's? position, the Clinton team's position on the idea of indexing the minimum wage. She's called for $12 an hour, uh, but this uh, uh, platform position would have actually called for it to be indexed uh, to inflation, I guess, so that we wouldn't have to keep having these fights year after year, and that, like you said, uh, Ben Norton, uh, had they done that back in 1968, the wage would now be uh, $22 an hour. So uh, do we know what the Clinton position is on indexing it, whether it's $12 or $15, hooking it to inflation? Well, 
I guess I haven't, in this case, I haven't seen a position explicitly stating support from Hillary Clinton's campaign, um, so I can't really comment. I would, I would say, you know, just from conjecture, I would imagine that she would say the same thing, that she would support it, but I haven't seen, you know, her calling for it, which is an important distinction, of course. And in the actual, you know, platform itself, uh, the committee members who were appointed by Clinton, namely mm-hmm. Paul Booth, pointed out that, yes, we, the platform currently says it would support raising the minimum wage $15 and it would support indexing it. But Keith Ellison, the Sanders appointee and the chair of the Progressive Caucus in the Congress, mm-hmm. he explicitly called for demanding that the minimum wage be indexed. So again, uh, you know, I think there's a distinction here between saying, oh, yes, well, I would support this policy right. and saying, no, I demand this policy. And I think I should add one point here. Yeah. I mean, uh, I do think that although these battles should be fought, there's no question, I think at the end of the day, grassroots, grassroots movements like Fight for 15 are the ones that actually push politicians to implement these policies. You know, I do think that, that $15 minimum wages index is, you know, in many ways a bare minimum, and it should be implemented. And actually, D.C. just uh, enacted a law this week. Yeah that will increase the minimum wage to 15 by 2020, and it does index it for inflation. But again, this is not because necessarily they had a Bernie Sanders-like candidate in D.C. It's because they had very active activists and labor unions that were fighting for that. So again, I think this is a very important you know, battle that's going on within the DNC, within the Democratic Party. But I think at the end of the day, I don't think people should be too concerned or that's the wrong word. I think they should be concerned, but they shouldn't be like depressed because, at the end of the day, activists are the ones who are going to fight for these policies. And did uh, Ellison? You reported uh, Ben in your piece over at Salon. <laughs> I love this that uh, Ellison's counter uh, to the Clinton team when they said, "Well, it's already in there." Uh, he said that if his proposed amendment uh, were truly redundant and if it was already in there, then it didn't help. It didn't hurt to clarify the party's exact position on the wage. He said there's really no reason to oppose it, but they did oppose it anyway. It, it was shot down ultimately, at least in the uh, in the draft position they came out of St. Louis with. Yes. And actually, I think, you know, this is important to discuss, but I think there are a few other measures that are were also shot down that are truly, truly troubling. And I mentioned in that piece that uh, Ellison also proposed an amendment stating firm opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the mm-hmm. TPP, you know, this global neoliberal trade agreement that was basically written by hundreds of corporations, and mm-hmm. it was secretive, and there was no input of, you know, the actual people that it will impact. And, you know, when he proposed this, they first said, okay, well, we have to deliberate it later. So then they tabled it, and then later uh, they voted against it. And uh, the chair of the committee, Elijah Cummings, another congressman, um, he said, you know, well, we don't want to challenge the president's authority. Uh, president Obama has, has lobbied very vociferously on behalf of the TPP, uh, and President Clinton now claims to oppose it, but as Secretary of State, she also very forcefully called for people to ratify it. So, uh, you know, it wasn't just minimum wage. Overall, I think the the drafting hearing, mm-hmm. uh, I would say in many ways it was somewhat disastrous, but even more than that, um, it, it really reflects the the war going on within, you know, uh, the progressive community in the U.S., yeah. and it really shows that there are these two camps, one that is 
demanding these left-wing policies, and then one that is, is willing to compromise in the interest of supporting these political candidates, and like I sh- Hillary Clinton or and, and I should note, uh, you, you uh, describe them as left-wing policies. They're really not all that left-wing, in truth. Uh, they may be left of center, but I think that the uh, Democratic Party has moved so far to the right uh, that, you know, media tend to report these things as left-wing, as leftist, uh, but they're really not. Uh, but that said, the committee itself was sort of a concession to Sanders from the Clinton camp, allowing his uh, five very progressive folks on the committee, uh, including, uh, let's well, not just Ellison, but also Bill McKibben of the very influential environmental group, 350.org, uh, pro-Palestinian advocate James Zogby, and uh, radical, uh, in a good way, radical scholar and Black Lives Matter champion and, and Sanders supporter Cornell West. Uh, have they... How have they held up here in general, influencing the platform in other places? Are, are there any places where we can actually see that they have made progress, that they have been able to push the push the platform farther to the left than it otherwise would have been? You know, there's there's been a lot of triumphalism in liberal media outlets, and there were some concessions, um, largely on social issues. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm certainly not downplaying the importance of that. You know, for instance, there was discussion of the Hyde Hyde Amendment and um, you know, support for abortion rights, and mm-hmm. you know these are all great things. But I think on the the real progressive issues mm-hmm. that that have underscored the difference between Clinton and Sanders, mm-hmm. you know, there wasn't really much gain. I mean, in the areas where Clinton and Sanders agree, of course there was agreement. But I think you know there were some very very serious losses. I would say they were predictable. But, you know, it's not just TPP. Um, even, especially in foreign policy issues where Clinton is, you know, extremely hawkish, uh, the, the DNC wouldn't even recognize that there is an Israeli occupation. Yeah. You know, this is, this is not controversial in any way. You know, Israel illegally occupied Palestinian land in 1967. The UN has recognized this for decades. You know, even, you know... Uh, Right-wing supporters of Israel often recognize that, you know, there is a military occupation. They happen to support it, but they recognize that it exists. Right. The Democratic Party wouldn't even, ref- they, they refused to use the word occupation, and they had a discussion about, you know, in the hearings about what an occupation is. <laughs> and, you know, not just that. On Syria, the Democratic Party refused to uh, pass an amendment offered by Jim Zogby a center's point to you that called for no U.S. military intervention in Syria. So, you know, the platform opens the possibility, and again, this is still non-binding, but it opens the possibility of U.S. military action in, you know, this already chaotic region. You know, I mentioned the TPP. Yeah. There are other factors as well. On, you know, uh, on fracking, for instance, again, you had this this kind of uh, stalemate. And mm-hmm. on, on environmental issues, there were there were some... There was some ground that was earned, but it still wasn't the kind of, you know, progressive platform that I think millions upon millions of Americans and the majority of the Democratic Party support. Yeah, they supported, uh, apparently they supported uh, fracking regulations, but they would not ban it. Uh, They would Mm -hmm. not support a carbon tax. Um, and but yet they have been uh, putting forward the idea that well we we are more progressive than we were, 
But listen, Ben Norton, does this part does the the party platform, whether it's for Democrats, it's really a question for both Democratic and Republican party platforms. Does it really mean anything? I, I mean, I know it's what Sanders supporters are now hanging much of their hopes on, or or at least Sanders uh, himself is. But it's not a it's not binding for anything. What impact does it really have on the party at either the federal or state level, particularly when you point out that it is the people on the ground? And I'm not trying to make excuses for for the for the Clinton team. I'm actually uh, trying to be more encouraging to the to the Sanders folks. You point out that it's, you know, folks on the ground who actually end up moving the party. Um, So there's really there's no official nothing binding about the party platform at all, correct? You're right. Well, and I, I think it's a very important question. I'm glad you asked it. Honestly, I think that this, this battle is much more about changing discourses within U.S. politics. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly, I am very convinced that the Democratic Party cannot be reformed from within. Mm-hmm. I have I, argued vociferously, and I, and I still do, that we need third-party alternatives. You know, it's, to me, it's absolutely egregious that the U.S. is one of the only democracies in the world that really does not have any significant third parties. Mm-hmm. You know, there, of course, are other democracies that have two dominant parties, but they usually have small independent parties that, to some extent, influence politics. In the U.S., there is almost nothing. There's, it's a complete duopoly. And I think we're never going to have the kind of serious changes we need, the structural changes we need, until we have a party that, that is to the left of the Democratic Party. And as you said, the Democratic Party really isn't even a left-wing party anymore. It's a centrist party. Right. Directed to the right, as the Republican Party has gone off the rails to the far right. So we do need this left-wing party. You know, you can, it can be the Green Party, it can be the Socialist Party, it can be a new party. You know, I think that's, that's a really important you know, goal. And I think when we look at the Sanders campaign and the strategy right now, you know, Sanders has said, you know, we're trying to change the Democratic platform. But I think more importantly, it should be about pushing for a political platform and telling Americans, telling millions of Americans who have demanded these policies for decades that they can have what they want. They can have these very reasonable policies that have already been implemented by most of the world. You know, they can have maternity mm-hmm. leave, they can have universal health care, they can have free public education. And in most of the industrialized world, these are policies that have been implemented for decades and are taken for granted, even by, you know, the mainstream right-wing parties. And, and I think, you know, when we're looking at the DNC platform, I wasn't surprised that, of course, they resisted these policies. But the fact that the debate happened, the fact that Americans are learning about this, mm-hmm. they're seeing for one of the first times that the Democratic Party really doesn't represent their interests. You know, they're seeing that, at the end of the day, Hillary Clinton's camp much more often sides with corporations and with lobbyists than it does with average Americans. And there are some victories, absolutely, and we should cherish those victories, but I think the Sanders campaign isn't just at this particular moment. I think, you know, it will go on in the future to do this. But it's not at this particular moment about winning the presidency. It's about creating this new political movement, Mm -hmm. as he said, this political revolution that continues beyond November that says, you know, we have these political demands and we we refuse to keep being denied. We refuse to accepting the status quo ante and we want something new. And I think that's very exciting. 
you know, people shouldn't be discouraged by these short-term victories, short-term losses, rather, mm-hmm. because I think they will eventually lead to long-term victories if the momen- momentum continues. And the fact, uh, I'll end on this note, the fact that Cornell West, by far the, you know, the most left-wing mm-hmm. person on that, you know, DNC drafting platform committee, mm-hmm. platform drafting committee, he refused to recognize the platform. He criticized the refusal to recognize Israeli occupation. He, he criticized its refusal to endorse universal health care, to call for universal health care. He recognized its refusal to ban fracking. And he said, no, this platform does not represent me. I'm not going to represent it. Mm. And you wrote, I know, Ben, over at uh, Salon.com, you wrote about uh, a recent interview with uh, Jill Stein on uh, of, the, uh, of the Green Party. Looks like she'll be their nominee. Uh, talking about some of these points, uh, also, we interviewed Jill on this show a few weeks ago, and, and Salon.com ran the uh, uh, a transcript from that from that interview. So there are options out there, but you know, when you look at the polls, uh, Ben and I, I you, you know, Jill Stein is polling four percent. How does something like that change? Uh, at least in the U.S. media, how uh, you know if you want to see uh, voters move to uh, you know th- third or fourth or fifth parties. How does that begin to change without putting, no, I, without without putting somebody like Donald Trump into the White House, which maybe that's, uh, you know, a lot of the Bernie or bust folks uh, say that's a, a price worth paying. I'm not so sure I agree, but but your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I certainly don't think that Trump would be preferable. My view is that in some ways, uh, Clinton is certainly better than Trump. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they're you know, both would be disastrous presidents, and they refuse to endorse either, of course. Um, but that said, you know, I think this is a very important political question, and I readily admit right at the beginning, and everyone should recognize this as they move forward, that if we're talking about building a strong third party, it doesn't begin at large uh, political positions like the president. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if we're fighting for the presidency, that's very far off in the future. That's decades mm-hmm. in the future. We're not going to win a presidential election on a third party for a long time. It's a strong, long struggle, and the important thing is to begin at local level position. And as Sanders himself has called for, which I think was a great idea, you know, we need to focus on, you know, local positions like, you know, local mm-hmm. uh, Congress seats, like state, you know, state Senate seats. Sure. Um, you know, ombudsman, uh, court, all these different local positions. And, you know, those are very real battles. Oftentimes, people ignore local-level elections, and, you know, people win with several thousand votes. If you want to build a third party, you begin by taking it over at the grassroots level. You know, you run whatever the party is, the Green Party Mm -hmm. or whatever, you run, you know, in your local elections, and then eventually you build power. You know, Sanders has been an independent his entire career. People forget that. He's, He's... one of the only independent senators in history. And you know, he's been in the Senate for more than a decade as an independent. And he won. He won the Senate seat. You know, it was a hard battle, mm-hmm. but he did it. It's possible to do. The presidency is, is off in the future. And the thing about the U.S., which is prohibitive, is the U.S. has a presidential system of elections, not parliamentary system. And I think that's something we could also consider in the future. In much of Europe and other countries, when you vote, you don't necessarily just vote for the, the candidate who will be prime minister or president. You vote for the party, and then they form a majority government. 
and they negotiate, and the, the leader of the majority party in that majority government becomes mm-hmm. the prime minister. Um, in the U.S., it's winner takes all, and I, you know that's that's uh, very problematic because what that does is it says, okay, you know, uh, the fifty-one percent of people who voted, their their vote matters, and then the forty-nine percent, they don't have a say. This is the leader. So there there are a lot of different discussions to be had. Yep. But at the end of the day, I think the most important response to that question is we must start locally, as Sanders himself has called for. He has called for working within the Democratic Party, but I think we should be seriously talking about you know, running local candidates in a, in a progressive third party to challenge the Democratic Party and to say that you know, we can pursue these alternatives. It's not inevitable that we'll be continued for the rest of our existence to be dominated by these two parties. Well, I wonder even at the local level, and you're right, uh, Sanders has called not just for, you know, state level, but uh, municipal level. He started as a mayor of Burlington. Actually, I think he started before that. He's talked about school boards, you know, the the, the Board of Ed uh, running for those positions. And I think, frankly, whether it's a Democratic Party, a progressive party, an independent party, a Green Party, I think if uh, people with progressive ideas start taking over those uh, you know, those school boards, those municipal level uh, governments, state, city, uh, local level, and so forth. That is how you begin to make a difference, no matter what the party name is on it, to be frank. Uh, it's, it's about the policies, uh, really not necessarily the party name. Although, uh, when you see the fight that they're putting up, that the, uh, the DNC and the Sanders folks are putting up against something so innocuous, frankly, as the platform and words like occupation, uh, you know, in a platform that doesn't actually is not binding. It does make you wonder how hard it would be to change that party. But to me, I just think, OK, well, let's get to work. Uh, ben, I got to get out. Really good talking to you, though. Are you going to be at the uh, are you going to the conventions, uh, the RNC in Cleveland and the uh, DNC in Philadelphia? Absolutely. And if I have one second, I would also like to add, you know, the U.S. is not this isolated country. You know, we have other uh, countries that are pursuing similar, you know, movements and, um, you know, trying to break out of two-party uh, duopolies. And mm-hmm. I think Spain is a good example. Just really quickly, you know, there's this party Podemos, which has existed for two years. It grew out of the Spanish Occupy movement, 15M, mm-hmm. or Los Indignados, and now it's the third largest party in the country that just had an election. So there is, there is a possibility to break out of this, you know, in two years. They went from nothing to the third largest party. And, you know, if the U.S. did something similar, I think we really could have an enormous impact in a small amount of time. Dreamer. That's Ben Norton, political staff writer uh, at Salon.com, proprietor of BenNorton.com. You can, you can and should follow him on the, uh, on the Twitters at Benjamin Norton. Uh, great talking to you, Ben. Uh, good luck at the uh, conventions. Bring your uh, gas mask, uh, particularly, actually for both of them. Uh, who knows what's going to happen, and uh, hopefully we can check in with you uh, throughout those conventions uh, over the next month. I'm looking forward to it. It should be fun. Thank you, brother. Good luck to you. All right, a quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Oh, no. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. My thanks once again to Ben Norton of Salon, who I called a dreamer there at the end. And I really shouldn't. Uh, because uh, the fact is, he's right. Change does happen quick. I was joking, of course, but uh, change does happen quickly. It can happen overnight if people bother to actually show up. But indeed, uh, Bernie Sanders' call, at least he says that uh, his call to have people run at the uh, local, state, municipal level and so forth, that uh, folks have been answering that call. We will see. We will see. Uh, But uh, change does happen overnight when there's an election and people actually show up and vote as they did. At least uh, some of the people did. The people who were in favor of uh, Britain leaving the uh, European Union did late last week. Here was um, we talked uh, earlier this week about the uh, the regrets that some are having either for casting the vote to leave the uh, European Union or for not bothering to vote at all. All. Uh, here's how Colbert uh, described this regret. There's been so much Brexit remorse that people all over were tweeting with the hashtag regrexit, <laughs> which is very cute. But I gotta say, uh, no disrespects it, but your Brexit referexit could cause a global economic deprexit. What the fecks it regrexit? You can suck my dexit. <laughs> Legal. Yeah, legal. If he can say it on CBS, we can say it here. He was very proud of himself for that. He was as well. He should be after, uh, you know, we first covered that after it first broke. Then I uh, called uh, and looking at you, Desi Doyen, once again, and your uh, great uh, people in Texas called on them to leave, to take the message. <laughs> the, uh, and I called it Texit. Well, yeah. sure enough, emboldened by Brexit, Reuters reports U.S. secessionists in Texas are keen to adopt the campaign tactics used to sway the British vote for leaving the European Union and are demanding, quote, Texit comes next. The citizen-driven vote in Britain can be a model for Texas, which was an independent country from 1836 to 1845, and its $1.6 trillion a year economy would be among the 10 largest in the world, according to Daniel Miller, president of the Texas Nationalist Movement. Once again, these are your people, Des. Uh, the Texas National Movement is formally calling, formerly, formally calling on the Texas governor to support a similar vote for Texans, the group said. They claim about a quarter million supporters, uh, and uh, the group had failed earlier this year to place a vote on secession on the November ballot, but they aim to relaunch their campaign for the next election cycle in 2018, buoyed by the uh, British vote, according to Miller. He says, Texit is in the air. Oh, my God. Well, you know, th- Texas is not actually legally allowed to secede from the Union. That is actually <laughs> not possible. We fought a whole civil war over that. Not that these people care about history or facts or the law even. But I'm just surprised at the lack of patriotism that they feel. And I think it would be great. I would think it would be great if they got that uh, that vote. They are patriotic for their country, which they regard to be Texas, not the United States of America, apparently. True, but I think that they should get that referendum so that the folks in Texas can can see the horror of what is going on down there. They can actually recognize these people are crazy As- and what they want is nuts. And especially uh, once we build that wall. I am so in favor of that wall around the state of Texas so they cannot get into these United States. I'm sorry about the separation between you and your family, Desi Doyen. 
But hey, that's the way it goes. And we'll make Texas pay for it. And you're right. Constitutional scholars, according to Reuters, say that a U.S. state cannot break away. But this has not stopped hundreds of secessionist schemes throughout the nation's history. And not just in Texas, by the way. We see them from time to time out here in California. The uh, Reuters goes on to note that no state has been formed by seceding from another since 1863 when West Virginia was created during the Civil War. And you see how well that turned out. Uh, A 2014 Reuters Ipsos poll shows that nearly a quarter of Americans are open to their states leaving the union. So be careful what you wish for. Speaking of uh, ballot initiatives, California voters will now get to decide this November. Get ready, Desi, whether to legalize recreational marijuana. California State of uh, Secretary of State Alex Padilla announced on Tuesday that proponents of the measure did turn in more than the required amount of signatures needed to place the question on the November ballot. The uh, Jason Kinney, a spokesman for the California's Adult Use of Marijuana Act, said in a statement, according to the Sacramento Bee, that today marks a fresh start for California as we prepare to replace the costly, harmful and ineffective system of prohibition with a safe, legal and responsible adult use marijuana system that gets it right and completely pays for itself, says Kinney. The initiative asked voters whether they think people age 21 and older should be allowed to buy an ounce of marijuana and marijuana-infused products at uh, licensed retail outlets. It also asked whether people should be allowed to grow up to six pot plants for their personal recreational use. The measure is backed by Napster co-founder and former Facebook president Sean Parker, as well as California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, who told us, Desi Doyne, we spoke with him, what, a month or two ago. He said this was going to make it, that this was going to be on the ballot. Uh, He knew it in advance, I guess. Uh, But in any event, he predicted it and has been a long supporter of this. The uh, uh, the leading campaign in favor of the initiative has raised three point seven million dollars so far. If passed, the measure could raise as much as one billion dollars per year in revenue, according to state officials. These are not supporters necessarily of the of the measure, but these are you know, they review these initiatives to let people know how much they will cost and so forth. State officials say this will bring in an extra billion dollars. To the state of California, and it could also decrease public safety costs. In other words, the amount of money that we spend right now enforcing uh, stupid marijuana laws, that that is something that uh, both the Sanders and the uh, Clinton campaigns, as I understand, have agreed on in the the platform to at least allow states to make their own determinations. Uh, concerning marijuana. Well, it will be interesting to see if the federal government ever gets around to removing the prohibition on marijuana and changing it from a class one, I think it's a class one scheduled drug Mm -hmm. and that requires the special handling. It's also a brilliant political move to get it in and on the ballot in November for this year because turnout, as we have said over and over and over again, turnout is key. That's what helps progressive politics move forward. Yes, but those who have been against it have long been against it uh, just the way they are about vaping. We've talked about it because it's going to increase teen use. It's going to increase marijuana use by kids. Well, guess what? We now have some actual facts on that. Marijuana consumption by Colorado high school students has dipped 
slightly, but it has dipped since the state first permitted recreational cannabis use by adults, according to a new survey earlier this week, uh, contrary to concerns that legalization would increase pot use by teens. The biannual poll by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment also shows that the percentage of high school students uh, indulging in marijuana in Colorado was smaller than the national average among teens. So it actually has the opposite effect of decreasing. What do you know? It has actually gone down since they made it legal in the state of of Colorado for the the recreational use of pot. Uh, According to the department, again, this is from the state. 21.2% of Colorado high school students surveyed in 2015 had used marijuana during the preceding 30 days. That is down from 22% back in 2011, the year before voters approved that statewide initiative in Colorado. Uh, the first statewide uh, state licensed retail outlets opened in 2014. Nationwide, the rate of pot use by teens is slightly higher than it is uh, in Colorado at 21.7%. This is based on a poll of some 17,000 students. Um, voters in Colorado and three other states, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska, have, ad- have approved recreational pot sales to adults in recent years. Colorado was the first to open retail marijuana shops in 2014. And six other states are considering similar proposals. One of them now being California. These statistics clearly debunk the theory that making marijuana legal for adults will result in more teen use, said Mason Tvert, spokesman for the Marijuana Policy Project. So there you go. Actual facts. Take that to the bank. Thank you to my producer, Desi Doyne, to my guest today, Ben Norton of Salon.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of this or any other Bradcast, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com, where you can also leave comments on any particular episode you like. You can also find and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog and drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. As Bill O'Reilly likes to say, keep it short and pithy. All right, until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 